0: Hello and welcome to the 18th episode in our series of commercial litigation update podcasts. I'm Anna Pratoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. As usual, I have with me Maura McIntosh, who is a professional support consultant in the litigation team. And today we also have Ben Phillips, who is an associate in the disputes team. In this edition, Maura will look at a significant recent decision on representative actions under CPR Part 19. I'll talk about a couple of recent cases on disclosure and the latest case on judgments handed down under embargo. And finally, Ben will discuss a Supreme Court decision on unjust enrichment essentially as to when the law of unjust enrichment can step in to provide for reasonable remuneration in circumstances where that hasn't been provided for under the contract. So I'll hand over to
1: Maura to start off. Thanks Anna. The case I want to look at is Commission Recovery Limited in Marks and Clark which is a High Court decision from the end of February It's important because it could significantly expand the circumstances in which representative actions can be brought under CPR 19, where a claimant sues on behalf of all those with the same interest in the claim, without having to join the individual class members to the action or or even identify them. Uh, now, the representative action is an opt-out class action procedure, in contrast to the main way that class actions are brought in English courts under the group litigation order or GLO procedure, which is strictly opt-in. Uh, so under a GLO, all the claimants have to issue claims, which the court then manages together under the GLO procedure. And because it's an opt-in procedure, it's it's m- much harder to get a case off the ground since the claimant firm and litigation funder, if there is one, which there usually is, need to recruit claimants to join into the claim. Now, that may be reasonably straightforward where the affected class is easily identifiable and individual losses are high, such as maybe in a shareholder action with lots of institutional investors where maybe the losses are are relatively large. Even then, of course, there's still a cost attached, but you can see that it would be worth individual claimants while to join up. But it can be extremely challenging to recruit claimants where the affected class is not readily identifiable and where individual losses are low, because then obviously there's little incentive for claimants to come forward. Now, I should say there's one other mechanism that claimants can use to bring opt out class actions in England which is to apply for a collective proceedings order in the competition appeal tribunal, and that can be either on an opt-in or opt-out basis. But that's obviously limited to cases where the claimant can point to some competition law infringement. So the representative action under CPR-19 is the only opt-out procedure available for other types of case. But historically, the representative action procedure has not been widely used because the courts have generally adopted a strict interpretation of the same interest requirement. So, for example, it was often said that the procedure couldn't be used to bring a damages claim since the loss suffered by individual claimants will usually vary depending on their individual circumstances, even if the loss is caused by the same wrongdoing. And so it was thought that such claims wouldn't be able to meet the same interest requirement. Now, that was tested in the high profile Lloyd and Google case in which Mr. Lloyd, who's a former executive director of the UK Consumers Association, tried to bring a representative action against Google on behalf of more than 4 million UK resident iPhone users for alleged breaches of the um, Data Protection Act 1998 in relation to the tracking of their data for commercial purposes. Now, Mr. Lloyd tried to get round the problem of this same interest requirement by essentially disavowing any reliance on class members' individual circumstances. Instead, he claimed damages on the basis of an equal standard tariff award for each class member to reflect the infringement of their rights and their loss of control over their personal data. That case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which refused to allow the action to proceed because it held that the act didn't give a right to compensation merely for the loss of control of data. There had to be some damage suffered which was separate from the infringement. And so the claimants needed to prove either material damage or mental distress. And since the claimants had declined to plead causation and damage on an individual basis, the the claim was bound to fail. Now, what's interesting um, is that Lord Leggett in that case suggested that where some elements of a claim did not meet the same interest requirement, there could be a bifurcated process, as he called it, in which truly common issues, um, where there really is the same interest, are decided through a representative claim, and any issues that need to be looked at individually can be dealt with later through separate claims. So, in principle, that could allow the representative action procedure to be used more widely, But the obvious difficulty is how that initial stage gets funded, because there's no pot of damages for a claimant law firm or funder to share in at the end of the stage one, the the representative bit. And even if there are awards of damages at the later stage for individual claimants, frankly, it's a bit of a free for all at that point, because other funders could come in and offer claimants a, a cheaper deal than the original funder as they wouldn't have to recoup the stage one costs that that, other funder had laid out. So um, really, it's hard to see why anyone would take on the funding for stage one in those circumstances. So against, against that background, the, the Marx and Clark case is potentially significant, because the decision go- goes or seems to go much further than the Supreme Court's decision in Lloyd and Google. Now, in Marx and Clark, uh, Mr. Justice Knowles' allowed claims for secret commissions to proceed as a representative action on behalf of all those clients for whom the relevant commissions were paid. Um, He decided that the representative action procedure is appropriate, seemingly on the basis that there's no actual conflict of interests between the claimants, though there are obvious differences between their claims in terms of things like quantum limitation and knowledge. So we'll have to see where that goes. I understand that there was um, a consequentials hearing uh, very recently with an application for permission to appeal put forward. Um, I don't know what the result was. Uh, If uh, Ms. Justice Knowles refused permission, I expect defendants are likely to seek permission from the Court of Appeal. But subject to how all that progresses, I think the decision could lead to a more liberal approach to use of the representative action procedure, which obviously could be quite a big deal for how class actions are brought in English courts. Thanks, Maura. First, a couple of
0: cases on disclosure. There have been quite a few decisions in recent years about when documents held by a third party will be in a claimant or defendant's control for the purposes of their disclosure obligations. In the most recent case on the Point, La Financing and Credit Suisse, the claimant was a special purpose vehicle without employees and the litigation was effectively being conducted on its behalf by two employees of its main creditor, a company called KFW. The defendant applied for an order requiring the claimant to disclose the KFW documents to which those two employees had access, arguing essentially that because the employees were agents of the claimant, the documents to which they had access were in the claimant's control. But Mrs Justice Cockrell rejected that argument. She accepted that the claimant would have control over some documents on KFW's files, where those documents were created or held by the employees in their capacity as agents for the claimant. So particularly the documents created in order to conduct the claim on the claimant's behalf. But that didn't mean the claimant had control over all the KFW documents to which the two employees had access. It was a question of hats. The two employees had access to some documents wearing their claimant hat, but that didn't mean the claimant had control over documents the employees could access wearing their KFW hat. So the bottom line is, as you'd expect, the question of whether a party has control over documents in the hands of its agent comes down to the scope of the agency and the capacity in which the agent is holding the documents. The second case I want to mention on disclosure, Soriano and Forensic News, is a reminder that in some cases, parties to English proceedings might be able to take advantage of procedures in foreign courts to assist them in gathering evidence. In particular, where there are documents held by third parties uh, in the US, uh, an application under Section 1782 of Title 28 of the US Code. That allows a party to non-US legal proceedings to apply to a US district court for an order requiring an individual or entity in the relevant federal district to provide documents or testimony for use in the foreign proceedings. In Soriano, the defendant applied to a New York district court for an order requiring a US subsidiary of HSBC to disclose documents relating to payments to and from the claimant's accounts with HSBC in London. The claimant applied to the English court for an anti-suit injunction to try to prevent the defendant proceeding with the US application, but the court refused the injunction. It was common ground that the English court has the power to restrain a party to English proceedings from pursuing a Section 1782 application in the US by issuing an anti-suit injunction, The test is whether the US application is unconscionable in that it is oppressive or vexatious or interferes with the due process of the English court. Here, the court said that test wasn't met. Just because the US court might grant third party disclosure on a more generous basis than the English court did not make the section 1782 application unconscionable. The cases in which such applications have been restrained involved other factors, such as where the application would effectively mean reopening a trial that had already ended or subjecting a witness to double cross-examination. So the messages from this case, well, uh, remember that the Section 1782 procedure may be available to help with evidence-gathering if there is a third party with relevant documents in the US and conversely that it may be possible to prevent your opponent using that procedure where it would be uh, oppressive or vexatious or interfere with due process. But you'll likely have to show something more than that the disclosure your opponent is seeking wouldn't be available on a third party disclosure application in England. And finally, into digital technology and Lenovo Group, which is yet another judgment relating to what parties can or cannot do with draft judgments provided under embargo. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that that's been a common theme over the past year or so. In this case, an in-house lawyer who received the draft judgment when he was out of the office on holiday disclosed the outcome by email to the company's U.S. external lawyers. They were involved in some aspects of the dispute and he considered them co-counsel with the English lawyers who were on the record in the proceedings. But he conceded that what he did was in fact a breach of the embargo. So the obvious message is that unless you get the court's permission, a draft judgment should not be sent to other lawyers who aren't on the record in the proceedings, even if they have been uh, involved in the dispute to some extent. The other point is that in this case, the court thought the relevant individual might be in contempt of court, even though he had no intention to breach the embargo and didn't realise he would be in breach in sending the email. In other words, the court thought that there was an argument that there might be strict liability for contempt of this kind. In all the circumstances of the case, including that the individual had accepted responsibility and apologised to the court, the court thought there was no need to take the matter further, and so it didn't determine the question about strict liability. But uh, once again, it underlines the need for caution in dealing with draft judgments. That's it from me. I'll hand over to Ben.
2: Thanks, Anna. As Anna said, I'm going to speak about Barton and Morris, which is a Supreme Court decision on unjust enrichment, which is a fairly techie sounding area of the law. But in fact, the decision has very practical implications for those entering into contracts. The claimant, Mr. Barton, entered into an oral agreement with a company called Fox Pace Limited, which was aiming to sell a property in London. Foxpace agreed to pay Mr Barton £1.2 million if the property was sold for £6.5 million to a purchaser he introduced, but they didn't discuss whether Mr Barton would be paid anything if the property was sold for less than £6.5 million. You can see where this is going. Mr Barton did introduce a potential purchaser, but the ultimate sale price was only £6 million, and so Foxpace refused to pay the £1.2 million to him. The High Court rejected Mr Barton's claim for the fee, finding that the express terms of the contract only provided for payment if the property was sold for £6.5 million. It rejected Mr Barton's alternative argument that Foxbase had been unjustly enriched at his expense, finding that an award of damages based on unjust enrichment would represent an unacceptable interference with the terms of the contract. The Court of Appeal, however, disagreed. It held that since there was no express agreement as to what would happen on a sale for less than £6.5 million, awarding damages for unjust enrichment would not undermine the party's agreement. So the Court of Appeal did award damages of £435,000, which was intended to reflect the value of the service that Mr Barton had provided in introducing a purchaser for the property. The Court of Appeal also suggested that, rather than claiming an unjust enrichment, Mr. Barton could have recovered based on an implied term that he would be reasonably remunerated for his service, regardless of the sale price. The Supreme Court overturned the Court of Appeals decision by a majority. In relation to unjust enrichment, Mr. Barton had argued that he and Foxpace had assumed the property would sell for £6.5 million, and so when it sold for less, the basis of their agreement failed, and Foxpace was unjustly enriched. By his efforts in introducing the purchaser. But the Supreme Court did not accept that the parties had made any such assumption. The fact that they hadn't agreed a term as to what would happen if the property was sold for less than 6.5 million did not prove that they assumed a higher sale price. And anyway, in the Supreme Court's view, the unjust enrichment claim was inconsistent with the party's contractual allocation of risk. It said that where parties to a contract set out the circumstances in which a payment obligation will apply, they necessarily exclude any obligation to pay in the absence of those circumstances. So, in other words, the fact that the contract was silent as to what would happen if the property sold for less than £6.5 million meant that nothing would happen in that scenario. No payment obligation would arise. It followed that the Supreme Court did not accept that there could be an implied term providing for payment of reasonable remuneration if the property sold for less than the £6.5 million threshold. That too would contradict the express term that Mr Barton would be paid if the property was sold for more than that sum. The court could see that it might be necessary to imply a term that Fox Pace would not, in effect, play a dirty trick by agreeing a reduced price with the purchaser to avoid paying Mr Barton, but that was not in fact what had happened. So the obvious lesson from this case is to make sure your contract is clear and that it covers all eventualities. No doubt the dispute would have been avoided in this case if the contract had made it clear what would happen if the property was sold for a lower price. And remember that if your contract just says that a payment will be made in particular circumstances, the courts are likely to interpret that as a comprehensive statement of when the payment is due and you're unlikely to be able to rely on the law of unjust enrichment to claim payments in other circumstances.
0: Thank you Ben and Maura and to all of you for listening. That brings us to the end of today's podcast, which will be my last as I'm retiring from the firm at the end of this month. But Maura will be back with another update in a couple of months.